Bibles, everyone, you can turn to Mark chapter 5. If you don't have your Bible with you, the Pew Bibles might be back. If not, um, there's an insert in your bulletin with the text on it. Our study of Ecclesiastes on Sunday nights right now has really been doing some work on me. Uh, It's making me see the world in a different way lately. For some reason, the, the fallenness of it, the decay, the corruption of it, the idolatry in it has weighed more on my mind the last year or so. When I say that, I don't mean to imply that, uh, you know, I have some form of spiritual insight or maturity level that other people don't. And so I see things in a sharper way than other people. I don't really mean that at all. I, I mean that the last year and the current situation, the outlook of our country, what COVID revealed about the idols of the church in America, um, have made me more eager for rest, more eager for action at the same time. It's in times such as these when the story the Gospels tell about Jesus come into sharper focus, become more precious. I said last week that I'm not sure we should return to normal. Well, I am. I'm I'm sure we shouldn't return to normal um, and get back to business as usual. I've not had some epiphany or vision or anything like that. I'm just, for some reason, beginning to feel the weight of the supremacy of Jesus and His gospel and His mission, and I want to be a part of it. I want our church to be a part of it. And uh, Let me say this briefly. I didn't plan on saying this. Um, when I came here, Everyone has been so wonderful to my family and I. You hear me say that a lot, and I mean it with all my heart. I don't have any complaints whatsoever about our church or being here or anything like that, but it was so good and so easy, I got a little comfortable with the idea of it staying that way. You know, where we had been before was so hard, and uh, I just loved the fact that we didn't have any messes like that and everything was so good, and then it's like I forgot there was a mission, though. And the mission of Jesus brings chaos. It always has and it always will. And so my heart's heavy from that. I don't want you to think I'm depressed or something. It's not that. It's like God is reminding me that I'm a preacher. I want our church to be a part of the mission of Jesus Christ. And the thing about that is, that's not my thing. Right? That's not my vision for the church. My vision for the church is irrelevant. Jesus' vision for the church means everything. And so that's what I want to be aligned with. He's never intended anything else for His people, whether they're in America or Uganda or wherever they are. He's never intended us to be about anything but His mission in the world. That's why we're here. So I want Jesus' vision for His church to shape our church. And when all is said and done, I want Him to say, well done to us. The cries of Desperation in our world, beloved, they're deafening. That's all we're hearing right now. All the throes that we're hearing right now, it's a cry for a Savior. 
It's a belief that other things and other people are saviors, but that's what it is. It's the world's desperation reaching a fever pitch. Humans live under the curse of sin and death in a world that God has subjected to futility and meaninglessness so that people will grope in the darkness until they find the only thing worth standing in awe of, Jesus. Jesus Christ came to close the unfathomable gap between us and our Creator. Our sinfulness, our rebellion, our stubbornness and brokenness keep us alienated and separated from the very source of our lives. The healings of Jesus in Mark's Gospel that reveal the authority of Jesus as Israel's Messiah have played a prominent role in the story so far. But here in chapter 5, they reach a bit of a climax in two scenes. Uh, As Jesus not only heals a woman's long-term chronic disease, but then raises a little girl from the dead, all in the same passage. These miracles signify that in Jesus the kingdom is arriving, which means that hope and restoration and renewal have finally come to a fallen world. But so beautifully implicit and explicit often in the miracles and message of Jesus is this revelation with this new kingdom coming into the world that nothing is required of us to be a part of it other than our agreement with Jesus that He is that Savior. We don't need money. We don't need talents. We don't need potential. We don't need a good record or a list of achievements. We don't need to prove that we belong. What we need to do is clutch the hem of His robe. And that's it. The hope of the desperate is that simple faith in Jesus saves. And beloved, he is calling to you and he is calling to me. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. The life of your son, Jesus Christ, and the story of it, the gospels tell. Father, please overshadow my flesh, my pride, my self-centeredness for the sake of your word this morning, for the sake of your people and the sake of your name and your son in our midst. God, break hearts, open blind eyes, open deaf ears, raise the dead. If you don't come and do this, we're dead in the water. Dead in the water. As people, as a church. So, Father, I'm begging you to come and fill up this little place for your name's sake. Use this message for your name, for your glory, for your people, I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. These two scenes are so closely connected that it might help us to go ahead and grasp the story better if I actually read it in its entirety. So this is 22 verses, so stick with me, but we want the full effect, and then we'll walk back through it together. Beginning in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly. Notice, that's the posture here of chapter 5 towards Jesus, falling at his feet, and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. 
And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear. Only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Do you notice now, this little girl has no choice but to be at his feet. She's dead. Right? That's her posture. The last one, the climax, can't even come and bow down before him. Note that. 41. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. Both of these scenes concern females who are in hopeless situations, chronic disease, death. Women were, to put it politely, marginalized in ancient culture to a great degree. So both of them are in absolutely hopeless situations. Both situations involve ceremonial impurity, right? The woman's condition, the little girl's dead, dead body. Both women are in effect called daughters. The first, the daughter directly, and then little girl is a derivative of daughter. And then a period of 12 years is significant in both. You notice that the woman's condition, the little girl's age, and in both stories, the healing touch of Jesus that gives and restores life, even life from the dead, is the result of simple faith. That is how all that God has promised is accessed, beloved. Just faith. In verses 21 to 24, Jesus returns to Jewish territory on the western side of the lake where he's met immediately by a leader of the synagogue named Jairus. A synagogue leader would have been uh, an administrator in the synagogue, maintaining its facilities, organizing the worship services. And we don't usually get names in miracle stories when you think about it. Uh, the only other time we get a name in Mark would be later in the case of blind Bartimaeus in 1046. But here we learn this man's name and we learn that he's a daddy. His little girl is dying. He comes, he falls at the feet of Jesus, and he begs. In Luke's gospel, we find that this was Jairus's, or Jairus's only daughter. Luke tells us that. So the situation couldn't be more desperate. But this man believes that if Jesus would but come and lay his hands on her, her life would be saved. If you can just show up and do that, she'll be saved. Every father in this room with a little girl can imagine the desperation Jairus is feeling in this moment. So we can all feel the anxious excitement in verse 24 when we read that Jesus went with him. Jesus listens. He goes. Hope is on the way. But we also find in verse 24 that a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. So here, the crowd is an impediment to 
to Jesus, they're in the way, but they also prepare us for his compassion and sensitivity as we begin the next scene. Pick it up in verse 25. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. So just like the demoniac in the first part of the chapter, she is described as completely beyond human help. You see that. What could be done has been done, and it hasn't fixed her. She hasn't gotten better. In fact, she's gotten worse over the years. She's had a chronic bleeding disorder of some kind, probably uh, menstrual in nature, for 12 years. Not only would this have been very isolating socially, but it would have been increasingly detrimental to her health, and it would have made her ceremonially unclean again in Israel. So her participation, her whole life, her whole culture, religious life, Uh, would have been severely limited. She was as unclean as a leper. No one was allowed to touch her. No one was allowed to touch her clothes, or they would also become unclean. So she wasn't just suffering from physical misery, but social and religious misery because she'd been banished from fellowship, from association even with the people of her culture, the people of God. So just by being in the crowd that was thronging around Jesus, she is actively disobeying the Old Testament law. Everyone in the crowd that touches her is unclean. Look at 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. So, well. so Jesus' reputation as a healer has Obviously spread throughout Galilee. She's heard the news. And even though God's law forbade her from touching him and her uncleanness, she reaches out. She touches Jesus. It's hard to say exactly why she felt she needed to come so secretly, but I guess we can understand it. She was probably ashamed of her condition. She might have even thought that the disciples or maybe the scribes or Pharisees in the crowd that knew of her condition would discipline her or yell at her. She touched Jesus and her impurity, the whole crowd, whatever the reason She approaches Jesus as an outcast, right? Desperate for healing, and yet sure, she's unworthy of his time, unworthy of his attention. So I'll just get close enough to touch his garment, and then I'll be made well, and I'll disappear into the crowd again. There was a common belief in the ancient world in terms of people that were like Jesus or people thought were like Jesus, that a person's power could be transmitted through their clothing. That's why you read later on, even in Acts, that people wanted to just fall under Peter's shadow or touch Paul's handkerchief or his Uh, work aprons. But Mark is very clear here that this isn't a magic trick. God did not heal this woman because she touched Jesus' clothes. God heals her in response to her faith in Jesus. Look at verse 29. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Now, the first thing to notice is there's no rebuke here. There's no, how dare you touch me? How dare you make me unclean? How dare you presume that I will heal you? The text says he perceived that power had gone out from him. Jesus was fully human, fully divine, fully man, fully God. She's healed because of the supernatural supernatural power residing in Jesus. And through his spiritual Inside his spiritual sensitivity, he is able to distinguish between somebody bumping up against him and somebody reaching out to him in faith to draw power from him for healing. Yet at the same time, I think he knew exactly who it was. 
He provides her with the opportunity to come forward and testify to what has happened to her. Who touched my garments? I'll pick it up in 31. And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. In the south, mainly, um, she'd come across a person who, you know, whose who's, uh, driveway doesn't go up to the house. You know what I mean? They say, they say bless, bless his heart. Bless your heart, right? That's a nice way of saying you're an idiot. That, that's, that's what they mean by that. The, the disciples probably needed somebody to say here, bless your guy's heart. You, you, you don't understand. They don't get it at all. They think Jesus is a little flustered from the crowd. What do you mean who touched you? Literally everybody is touching you. We're in a crowd, but Jesus is looking for her. In verse 33, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. And told him the whole truth. I love that line. Maybe she was afraid of being outed. But it seems more likely given her posture when she falls down that she's just overwhelmed with awe at the power of God to heal her 12-year disease in literally an instant. She tells him everything. Which means even how she tried to get to him uh, to get him to heal her secretly and quietly. But what is she doing? She's bearing testimony for everybody to hear of Jesus' power to heal in verse 34. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Notice that. Not my clothes. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This is the only place in the Gospels where Jesus calls someone daughter. Do you know that? This woman. He called the paralyzed man that he healed back in 2.5 his son. These are his children. These are his people. The poor, the lame, the desperate, the sick, the diseased, the hopeless, the unclean. She's now welcomed back to the fold. Jesus said that her faith has healed her. After all the help that she sought, believing so much in Jesus, that if she just touched his clothes, she would be healed. He healed her in an instant. It wasn't the magical power of his robe. It was God's gracious response to her belief in the power and authority of Jesus to heal her. What healed her was saying in her heart, if I can just touch his robe, he can heal me. He can make all this go away. By faith in Jesus to be who he claimed to be, however, didn't just take away her disease. It saved her soul. Faith is what saves people. Faith in Jesus to do and be what he says he is and does. Because faith in Jesus also grants the forgiveness of sins. You, you see that? We, we don't call people to a plan of salvation. We call people to a person of salvation, to Jesus. Well, remember Jairus now? In the midst of all this, the man whose little daughter was dying. We pick it up in verse. Imagine him going with Jesus, trying to get to his daughter, and Jesus stops and asks, Who touched me? And begins to look around, and there's this unclean woman that he's talking to and spending time with, and his daughter is dying. So imagine what he's feeling in this moment. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? So it seems that the restoration of one daughter has resulted in the death of another. So maybe Jesus can't do it all. Maybe he is limited by time and space. Maybe there are things that even he just can't overcome. No, beloved, sometimes he just wants to do even greater things. He's a savior. He's never late. He's never late.
verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. Which would mean Jesus is saying that the same thing that healed this woman could actually raise the man's daughter from death. Now that's another level of miracle. Surely Jesus doesn't have the power to cheat death itself, but what is he saying to Jairus? What is he saying to this daddy, right? Don't be afraid. You believed enough to come to me. Don't doubt me now. Keep believing. Keep believing. Jesus wants to emphasize that belief is literally all it takes. That's what he's emphasizing here. That's what he's bringing out for the crowd to hear. Distance then can't keep him from us. Sin and death cannot thwart him. Time cannot separate us from his healing touch. Only believe. That's what he's saying. Verse 37, and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. We're learning in little pieces that Jesus, even amongst his disciples, had an inner circle around himself that was even closer than the larger group. Verse 38, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Families could and did pay professional mourners at this time. They would uh, play flutes, sing dirges, they would weep and wail. In fact, the more intense the weeping at someone's death... the more you knew that person meant to those that had lost them. Their presence here also lets us know that she's actually dead. She's died. When Jesus arrives, the morning is at a fever pitch. This was his only daughter. She was his little girl. How else can we respond to death? It's awful. But Jesus is here. Jesus is in control. Jesus is Lord. What's with the commotion? She isn't dead. She's sleeping. Jesus doesn't mean that she didn't die. He means that he's here. And when he is present, even death might as well be sleep. Verse 40. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside, (laughs) took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Those laughing are those who Jesus has said, have eyes but don't see, have ears but don't hear. So Jesus forces them out. Resurrection will not be interrupted by doubt. Verse 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Jesus heals with a simple touch, with a command. There are no incantations. There are no rituals. His words carry messianic authority. Jesus Christ commands death. And Jesus reverses the laws of impurity throughout the Gospel of Mark. The law said Jesus was unclean by the touch of the woman, so he's already unclean. The law said touching the little girl's dead body made him unclean. So isn't that interesting that he touches her body if her word alone gives, if his word alone gives life? There's no need to touch the little girl. Why does he do it? Why does he make himself doubly unclean? He didn't have to take her by the hand. His voice raises the dead. So why did he? For the same reason he allowed the woman to touch him, to show, to prove that salvation outweighs the law. The power of Jesus to give life trumps the power of the law to kill. 
Jesus Christ has come to save the desperate. And Israel and his disciples and the whole world need to know that Jesus Christ is not afraid to touch or to come close to what is unclean. 42, and immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. So she wasn't a baby is what Mark is telling you. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Yeah, you probably would be. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Jesus has restored the life of two women in this text. The woman with the menstrual disorder was now healed. Presumably she can have a life now. She can bear children. The little girl is 12 years old. She's right on the cusp of life. She's going to be able to grow up. He makes provision for her life, doesn't he? In verse 43, that he's raised her from the dead. She's not a ghost. She's alive now. Take care of her. Give her food. Jesus brings life from death. He turns grief into joy, desperation into hope. And now, if you'll notice at the end of the text, back in Israel, where the expectations for Jesus, for the Messiah, were much different than the reality Jesus was bringing, he tells them to keep quiet about what has happened. But again, just for now. Just for now. It's amazing to consider once again what ties these two amazing scenes together. And it's faith. Jairus has faith that if Jesus comes and lays his hands on his daughter, she'll be made well. The woman with the discharge of blood believes that if she can just touch the hem of his robe, she will be made well. Both of them are correct. This is what God responds to, faith. So it's faith, just believing that Jesus is who he says he is, can do what he says he can do. Faith is what brings the divine authority of Jesus to save, to give life, to bear on the desperation of human beings. Just faith. This is all God requires. And if faith is all it takes for Jesus Christ himself to act on my behalf, then there really is finally hope for desperate people in this world, no matter the cause or the source of their desperation. The desperate are those that don't have enough money to pay for God's services. The desperate are those who don't have a good enough reputation or a track record to impress Him. The desperate don't have a thousand people fighting for their cause. Nobody even knows about their cause. The desperate aren't good enough. They don't have anything to offer. The desperate know they are desperate. The only thing they have left to do is believe. And when we find in the Bible that God responds to this, He is telling us that we too can be saved. There isn't anybody in the world who isn't desperate for Jesus Christ to save them. Why does God accept faith? What is the big deal? Because faith is not a power we work up within ourselves. That's not what faith is. Faith isn't a virtue that we all possess. Not saving faith that brings Jesus to bear on our life. Well, the Bible teaches us, first of all, that the primary reason God accepts faith is because it's His gift to us in the first place. For all who have believed on Jesus for their salvation, they've done so because God gave them the gift of faith so that they could believe. 
We can't even take credit for our initial belief in Jesus. It's a gift. That's why it's so important to talk about faith in terms of desperation. People don't need to hear that they can come. They need to hear that they can't. So they have to cry out and beg Jesus to save them. Fall down at his feet rather than come tall thinking, I've made the right decision. Recognize me. If you could do that, you could boast. And I think the Bible talks about how salvation has been set up a certain way precisely so no one could boast. We aren't just desperate because we don't have enough. We're desperate because we literally can't come to him. We won't do it. This is why Jesus is so intent on doing miracles that go beyond the grave. Intent on saving people that aren't even asking for that. Right? Jairus isn't asking for salvation for his daughter. The woman didn't come for salvation. Why does Jesus save these people? Because he's trying to show in this text through Mark that faith takes hold of Jesus and Jesus is a savior. He's so intent on doing miracles that go beyond the grave. So intent on doing miracles that conquer Satan, that address the most hopeless situations. It's kind of funny that in Luke's gospel, Luke was a physician. Luke doesn't mention that she had exhausted all the physicians. Mark does. We can't save ourselves. We're all this woman. We're all this little girl dead in our sins. All the options have been exhausted. We can't even call out for salvation unless God does a miracle, raising us from the dead, enabling us to hear and come. That's the first reason God responds to faith, because it's the gift he gives us to respond to him. Faith is a result of grace. But God also responds to faith rather than our efforts and deeds and behavior, because faith is the rejection of all those things. In the case of Jesus, faith is an admission not only that we cannot, but that he must. He responds to faith because it's the gift of his grace enabling us to believe. It's the means by which he grants the salvation he's given to us. And he responds to faith because it is the rejection of our own works and our own goodness. And he responds to faith because it preserves his glory in salvation. God saves by grace through faith so that no one may boast. So that we get all the salvation and God gets all the glory. Do you think it mattered to the Israelites walking on dry ground through the Red Sea that that all happened so that God could get glory over Pharaoh? I bet they were just fine with that, having been released from captivity. This is precisely what makes the gospel good news. Right? God has not come to meet us halfway. God hasn't come so that you would take the first step and he would take the next 99. He's come because your legs are broken and you're dead. Right, beloved? Did you know this? Do you know why you're saved this morning? Do you know how you can be? We're dead in trespasses and sins. The Bible's very clear about this. None of this should surprise us. We are, the Bible says, without God, without hope. We cannot change our own hearts. We cannot change the color of our skin. We cannot pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. 
See how dangerous it is to the biblical gospel if we project this picture of Christianity that God helps people that help themselves? What verse is that? Is it in Revelinthians 29? Like, where, where is that garbage? It's not in the Bible, right? It's a very American thing to say. It's not a very biblical thing to say. Those are not the same. We cannot bring enough. We cannot do enough. We cannot say enough. We cannot give enough. We cannot deny enough. We're desperate. That's why Jesus is here. Right? We want to project that desperation to the world so that the desperate out there feel like they belong here. Right? That's the mission. That's the calling. I love what Daniel Emery Price says. I want nothing to do with a Christianity that tries to make people look like they don't need Jesus. I love that. This is why Jesus came and walked among us. To show what he could do. And then pay the cost for doing that same thing spiritually for you and me. The hope of the desperate is that simple faith in Jesus saves. So I say to you, no matter who you are, on the very authority of God's word himself, do not fear, only believe. That's literally all it takes. Don't do anything else. Don't start bargaining with your inner lawyer about whether or not you can come. You can come. Don't do anything else. Just believe. That's coming. Just take him at his word. Because it's the word that saves. It's the word that gives life. It's the word that grants salvation. It's the word that secures forever. It's the word that takes hold of everything God has promised his people. The hope of the desperate is that Jesus requires nothing to receive him other than the faith that he can and he will. Faith in this person is the only thing that grants the forgiveness of sins. You know why human beings don't really forgive each other? Because human beings are horrible saviors. We don't grant the true forgiveness of sins. We grant, I'm, I'm not going to hold that over your head the way I used to. That's about the best we can do. Right? And beloved, it will only ever be grace working through faith that saves a person. Only that. We, we will never, even as Christians, pass over into some level of obedience where what's saving us now is the goodness we've been able to produce. As though the cross got us in, we got us the rest of the way, grace got us in the door, it's up to me to finish. No, 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 beloved, no, no, no. Running the race to the end still means what it did for Paul when he said it the first time. It means forgetting what lies behind, not keeping track of it. Not trusting in it, but forgetting what lies behind, counting it all as rubbish, all our effort, all our righteousness, all our goodness for just the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus calls that in John 17, the very essence of eternal life itself. By grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one might boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for we were created in His image, beloved, to do the good works He's prepared beforehand for us. We are His children. 
We belong to Him. We, we, we had to be saved to glorify Him. Right? We had to be rescued to glorify Him. He, he had to prepare good works for us because we couldn't do them. Salvation will never become something you and I can take credit for. Ever. And if, if, if we act like that, if we project that, beloved, we are crossing purposes with Jesus. I've, I've, I've said it before, I will say it again. I don't even know originally who said it. But if we aren't attracting the same people Jesus did, we're probably not preaching the same message Jesus preached. Salvation is all Jesus or it's not happening. If heaven isn't a gift, none of us are getting in. And beloved, we also find in this message of hope for the desperate, the purpose and calling of the church. Do you know why we're here? We're here to spread the reputation of Jesus as a healer so that those lost in sin and darkness may hear and come hoping just to get a touch of this Savior's robe we worship, beloved. We stretch out the hem of His garment by His Word so that they may take hold and be saved. There is no other purpose for the church here and now. Don't be compromised by other causes and other loves. There is nothing we need to make sure this world has and make sure this world hears other than the gospel. Don't let the oppression that's coming or that you fear make you believe you have to fight for something else. Don't buy it. Don't believe it. The enemy is lying to you. He is lying to the church in America and we are eating it up because we're afraid of losing everything. Does anyone believe that anymore? Does anybody see it? We are so in love with this world, we think it's Christian. We sing songs about loving where we are. You know what the Bible says? Love not the world or the things of the world. And we sing about how much we love it. Right? Or do we not? Am I I making that up? There ain't no doubt I love this land. You do? You do? We must return. Beloved, we must return to the calling of Jesus. We must not forget the reason for which Jesus has saved us. The reason for which Jesus has sent us into the Ohio Valley. That message is why we have this building. It's the only reason God lets us keep this building. And it'll be the only reason God lets them take it for the message. Right? What is the church going to do if God decides this is getting in the way? We still going to follow Him? We still going to pursue Him? We still going to trust that He's good? That message is what we're here to make sure it doesn't get forgotten. This one, and only this one. Every other message compromises this one. Every single one. Beloved, there's salvation for even the worst of sinners. 
their salvation for God's people when they forget and when they mess up. When they get sidetracked, when we get deceived, when we get pulled away, Jesus brings us back. Don't be afraid. Only believe. Don't ask yourself, do I have faith? Ask yourself, do I have a Savior? And if your answer is yes, then you know you have faith and rest in Him. Rest in Him. This is our hope. This is their hope. And we are the ones God has raised up to tell the Ohio Valley about it. Look to Jesus, beloved. Look to Jesus. The people trying to pull you away from the world are not your enemy. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus.